I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. So we continue on working through this wonderful letter. We're going to be looking at verses 15 and 16 today. And uh, and then next week we'll finish chapter 2. And then on the 29th, uh, Harley will be preaching for us and we'll uh, start us into chapter 3. So today we'll be looking at 15 and 16. But I do want to begin reading in verse 11 just to remind us of what we've read. Really, the argument continues here. From Paul, so uh, let's let's begin in verse eleven, Galatians two, verse eleven. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. As we've been going through the first two chapters of Galatians, we've been talking about this matter of justification by faith alone. Uh, And yet, as we come to verses 15 and 16 here, this is the first time we actually have this word justified uh, being mentioned explicitly. Uh, Paul has been working toward and driving toward this statement, which exposes here the major error with the Judaizers and their so-called gospel. Uh, It's the same root problem that Peter himself had in his hypocritical actions that Paul exposed uh, in the verses we just read, verses 11 to 14. Their error, the Judaizers' error, corrupts this doctrine of justification. This thing that is at the very heart of the gospel, of the good news. This doctrine answers the age-old question of how it is that a sinner can be made right with their holy creator. It is a question that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see the fall of man into sin and God's pronouncement of punishment for that sin. It is pertinent all throughout the scriptures. When the nation of Israel entered into the Mosaic covenant with God at Sinai, we see it there as well. No sooner had this covenant been struck, really, and they violated it so grievously with the golden calf incident 
And God declares to Moses he's going to wipe them all out and start over with Moses. Now, of course, Moses intercedes and God shows mercy. But it's this reminder, this question that's at the root here of how can uh, sinful people be on good and peaceful terms with Almighty God who is holy? How can they exist in covenant relation with God without God simply wiping them out? That's the problem that's at the root of that issue there at Sinai. It is the age-old problem. It is the central problem found in the scriptures. And it continues to be the main problem today of utmost importance. Uh, Very clearly, mankind has not gotten our act together such that we are no longer sinful. Uh, We continue to be utterly and very clearly sinful. And so whether a person knows it or not, this question continues to be absolutely vital. And the Bible, of course, answers this question. It provides the solution. It teaches us and tells us throughout, and in this text that we're looking at today specifically, that the only way for sinners to be justified is by faith alone, apart from works, in Jesus Christ alone. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians, that we're saying in our text, really in no uncertain terms. And so as we go through verses 15 and 16, I want to look at um, two affirmations and two denials regarding justification that we find here. Um, But just before we do that, I want to just take a couple minutes and and think about this word justification. to be justified, what this means to be justified. Uh, In verse 16, this verb, to be justified, is used three times. Uh, This word is a legal term. Uh, If you've read maybe older authors, you hear it called a forensic term. That just means that it has to do with the law. It has to do with courts. Its basic meaning is to absolve or to acquit, declare righteous, or to vindicate a person. It is passing a judicial or legal sentence in somebody's favor. That's what the word means. So we see this throughout Scripture. For example, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. It says, If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judge decides between them, acquitting or justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty, then, and Deuteronomy 25 goes on to give further instructions. But that verse very clearly is talking about legal judgments, legal declarations, declaring a verdict. And when men judge in the case of other men, they're to do so truthfully, declaring righteous only those who are indeed righteous. You're not to acquit the guilty. So uh, Proverbs 17, 15 warns about this very thing. It warns not to justify, declare righteous, vindicate those who are guilty. Likewise, it says not to condemn those who are innocent. So this is a a legal term. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, uses the same word in Deuteronomy 25.1 that we find here in Galatians 2.16. And throughout the scriptures, this verb, to justify, has a legal meaning of declaring in one's favor. This is important because there are people out there, there are some like, for example, Roman Catholics, 
who argue that this word to justify here in Galatians 2.16 means to make somebody righteous. It's not declaring somebody to be righteous, but it's actually making them. It's infusing something in them and then turning that person into something inherently righteous. But this is not the meaning of the term attested throughout Scripture. It, is not, it does not mean making someone righteous. It is a judgment declaring that person to indeed be innocent or to be righteous. Right? That's what it means when you go to court and you're to, to judge fairly and rightly. If indeed the person is innocent in the matter, you're to declare that to be the case. You're not making them innocent. You're just declaring what is true about them. So when it comes to our text here, this is talking about how someone is declared righteous by God before his judgment, before his tribunal. It is a legal matter. The question before us is how on earth will we ever get to a place where the judge of all the earth, holy as he is, will rule in our favor, where we will be acquitted, where we will be declared righteous? This is the important matter that is at hand. So as I said, there are affirmations and denials here about justification. And I want to begin by looking at the denials. We're going to look at two of each. So denial number one, justification does not come through one's heritage. Justification does not come through one's heritage. If you recall, we read it earlier, we talked about it last Sunday, Paul has told us about his confrontation with Peter when Peter came to Antioch. Uh, Peter and Paul had met before, they had agreed upon the gospel. Uh, Paul, Peter, when he preached, did preach that one is justified through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Peter did not insist upon keeping Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be saved. Ordinarily, he sat and ate with Gentile believers. He didn't raise any objections over the fact that they weren't keeping the Old Testament uh, food laws. But in this incident, when he was in Antioch and these men came from Jerusalem, he was pressured, and Paul tells us he caved to fear, the fear of man. He started separating from his Gentile brothers and sisters. And his actions were undermining the gospel that he preached as his actions were communicating to Gentiles that their faith in Christ was not enough, that in fact, if they really wanted to be accepted and then therefore really have fellowship with Paul, they need, Peter, they needed to also keep these laws, these ceremonial food laws. And so he was undermining the gospel. If those were necessary for salvation, Peter was overthrowing, undermining the grace that he supposedly preached. And so Paul addressed this. He called out his hypocrisy. We saw last time he addressed it right there in front of everybody, in front of the people in Antioch, the church. And he pointed out that Peter didn't live that way normally, but now he's trying to make the Gentiles uh, act as if they are Jews. And he calls out this hypocrisy. And now in verse 15, Paul continues. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he acknowledges here that he and Peter and the other Jews as well, they did have a privileged birth. They were Jews. They, were, they belonged to the old covenant people of God. They were offspring of Abraham. 
They had had prophets of God sent to them. The promises of God given to them. They, had, uh, they, they were guardians, if you will, of, of the word that God had proclaimed to them. They had received the law and they knew God's law. They were not born in those Gentile nations that God had allowed to just, that God had just left in a much greater darkness. They were indeed privileged to belong to the people of Israel. Paul recounts these privileges elsewhere. In Romans 9, verses 4 to 5, he, teaks, he talks about these things. However, even though he and, and Peter and others were, were born in this way with this privilege, he adds this. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul very clearly denies that his heritage in and of itself justifies. Despite having the law, despite knowing that law, the law was not their pathway to being declared righteous before God's judgment. Jews like Paul, like Peter, like Abraham before them were justified rather by faith. Here's what Martin Luther said when he commented on this. He said, Paul had been born into Judaism and raised in its righteousness according to the law, unlike the Gentiles. But no matter how Jewish he was or how much he could boast of a heritage of righteousness that the Gentiles did not have, it did not make him any better than they were in the sight of God. As it turns out, Jews and Gentiles alike all stand condemned before God's holy law. And this is what the very thing that, that Paul labors to explain in Romans chapters 1 through to chapter 3, verse 20. That both Jew and Gentile alike, everybody is under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, a Gentile simply becoming outwardly a Jew, eating their, according to their food laws, being circumcised, whatever, none of this advances that Gentile person's cause when it comes to justification. In fact, these matters, these things are useless when it comes to justification. That was never their intention. This is not how any Jews were ever justified. And so it cannot be that these things would be the pathway in some way to justification for Gentiles. The temptation to rely on one's heritage, this is not something that is unique simply to the Jews. Today, I, I think it could happen in a number of ways, perhaps because someone is born in a particular uh, country or a particular culture, a particular Place They might just assume, of course, I'm a Christian. I was born in a Christian nation or whatever, they might say. That might be a way that people still think this way, rely on their heritage. I think another very common way and perhaps the most obviously dangerous way I can think of it is that kids who grow up in Christian homes and in churches could think that that automatically leaves them better off before God than their pagan neighbor kids because, after all, they grew up in a Christian home. They've been taught the scriptures from a young age. They know right from wrong. 
However, while that is obviously a wonderful privilege, that is a good thing, we rejoice in that, we are glad for that, this does not leave a child justified before God. In fact, in some ways, this leaves us, this almost increases our guilt because we're not sinning in ignorance. We might grow up, as I did in a Christian home, aware of the scriptures, being told of the the law of God, being aware of right and wrong, and yet still violating it. I wasn't ignorant of it. I knew full well it was wrong and still committed the sins. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. After laying out that Gentiles are sinful, everyone says, oh, of course, the world is sinful. Of course they are. And then he turns and says, but you who have the law, you do the very things your law condemns. You know it's wrong and you still do it. All are sinful before God. All fall short of his glory. The law reveals this to us. How many people assume they're good to go with God because of maybe where they're born. Because they've grown up in a Christian home or they've attended church or because they're just maybe not as bad as all those heathens around them. They've never engaged in all the the greatest of evils that maybe others have around them. But this is not a pathway to justification. Justification does not come through one's heritage. The second denial here is that justification does not come through one's works. It's obviously very related, but justification does not come through one's works. Justification by keeping laws, God's law, is denied here on three occasions in verse 16. So let's look at that again. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times he denies this. Now, I think it's plain that Paul is speaking about any works of the law. None of it is going to justify a person before God. However, there are those who argue that works of the law here is limited just to ceremonial Jewish laws like food laws and circumcision. After all, it is argued, that's what the dispute was about in Antioch with Peter, right? That was about eating. That was about food laws, Jewish ceremonial laws. Moreover, that's what the dispute was with the Judaizers over circumcision, a Jewish ceremonial law. And so, for example, Roman Catholics argue this way so that they can argue that Paul is saying that Jewish ceremonial laws do not justify, but there are other works that we might do that will contribute to our justification. Paul's not denying that. That's what they argue. So things like the Lord's Supper, the various sacraments, doing penance, this does contribute. These are works that we do that do contribute to our ultimate justification. So again, they're saying, they would argue, Paul is not denying the place of all works. He's just denying that Jewish ceremonial laws have anything to do with justification. There are also others who argue similarly. If you're familiar with the new perspective on Paul, men like N.T. Wright, they likewise argue that these works here are just 
talking about those distinctly Jewish aspects of the law, like circumcision and food laws. They say he's just talking about these sorts of boundary markers, as they say. There's a, there's a host of other problems we won't get into with that movement and how they define righteousness and justification. We'll leave it there for now. But I, I mention the new perspective and their error simply because N.T. Wright and the other new perspective writers, they have their theological offspring scattered throughout the evangelical world. And I would suggest to you that anyone who imbibes this error will end up teaching that obedience and works do indeed play some sort of role in our justification, some sort of instrumental or causal role in our justification. Because they'll, they'll argue that what I'm saying Paul is arguing here, that all works are excluded in the matter of justification, they'll say, well, not quite. Uh, only some works are excluded, the Jewish ceremonial laws, and they'll leave the door open then for other works to be brought into this matter of justification. And so if you ever hear that argument being made, whether it's here in Galatians 2 or in Romans 3, a parallel passage, let, may, may your theological discernment radar start going off uh, when you come across that, because it will, it will end up uh, in, with, with trouble down the line. Paul is arguing here that no works of the law justify. No works of the law contribute to justification. He's arguing that here, and we'll see it as we continue through Galatians. One commentator, his name is Joseph, I, I don't know if it's Pippa or Pipa, I think it's Pipa Jr. He says this, and I think it's helpful and correct about what Paul is doing here. As he often does, Paul moves from a specific problem, the doctrine of the Judaizers, to a universal principle that no sinful individual can be justified by God on the basis of obeying his law. So yes, the presenting problem has to do with ceremonial aspects of the law that are being brought back in, but Paul reasons from there to the broader or the, the underlying principle which reveals just how wrong this error is, just how bad it is. It is no mere scuffle about food or even something like circumcision. The issue that is at stake, the issue behind it is about the gospel itself. The issue behind it is whether works have any involvement in our justification. And if you argue that they do, even something small like eating a certain food or circumcision, that will destroy the gospel ultimately. This is... This is why Paul is so riled up in the book of Galatians. This is why he comes out firing the way he does. He's been saying this from the beginning, has he not? They've, they've moved on to another gospel as they are listening to these Judaizers. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, again, he, he foregoes all the, almost all the niceties of his usual letters and his thankfulness. And he just says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. This is the issue that is ultimately at stake. And so he's reasoning from this issue, this argument about ceremonial law, and, he, and he's saying the bigger problem here is that no works of law can justify. And so if you want to say one little work even adds to your justification or completes it or whatever is necessary for it, then you're destroying grace. 
This is indeed what, what, he's, what he's arguing and will continue to in Galatians. In Romans 3, we, we read a parallel passage to this, verses 19 to 20. And we see very clearly there as Paul uses the same kind of language here about works of the law, that he's not just talking about ceremonies. He's not just talking about the Jewish ceremonial law. So verse 19 again of Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's again laying out the fact that everybody is guilty before God, that the law of God reveals our sin to us and we're all accountable to God. He's not just talking about Jewish ceremonial laws as he's making this case. And he continues, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Again, he clearly has in mind the timeless moral requirements of God's law, not simply Jewish ceremonial laws when he uses this phrase, works of the law. Further in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul explains there to us how it is that the law of God brings about the knowledge of sin to people. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? That's the 10th commandment. That's not a ceremonial law that has passed away. It's the, the 10th commandment. The law of God brings about the knowledge of sin. It is not a pathway for people to be justified before God. Rather, it exposes our sinfulness. It reveals to us that we fall short of God's law and his standard. And so when Paul says in Galatians 2.16 that by works of the law, no flesh, no one will be justified, he means it comprehensively by no works of the law of any sort, period. And since this is the case, it cannot be that food laws or circumcision or anything else are necessary in order to be justified. If you would be acquitted before God's judgment, if you would be at peace with him, if you would have his declaration of righteous to be made over you, you must look away from yourself, away from your own actions, you will not be justified through your obedience to God's law. This is, again, I think, unequivocally asserted. So let's move to the affirmations. So we have two denials of what justification is not, how we're not going to be justified. Well, how, how does this work? Well, affirmation number one, the justification comes through faith alone. In verse 16, faith is mentioned three times. Uh, twice, the word faith is used, and once, a synonym, the word believed, is used. In this verse, there is a very clear contrast being made between works and between faith. This distinction between works and faith, this is not, as some people allege, a Greek-influenced sort of dualism that, that I'm now imposing upon the text. When it comes to the matter of justification, how it is we will stand righteous before God, be acquitted before his, his 
justice, by his justice, in his justice, before his judgment seat. When it comes to justification, works of law and faith are two separate and distinct pathways. There is the pathway of works and there is the pathway of faith. And this will continue to be drilled home throughout the book of Galatians. The law is not of faith, he will say. This is, this is scriptural, this distinction. If one would go the pathway of works in order to try to be justified before God, this will only leave you cursed. Because as we have seen, no human being will be justified in this matter. In chapter 3 and verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law to be justified, is what he's saying, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And it says, Cursed, let me finish that. No, I'll leave it right there. So we have these two different pathways that are distinct and separate. We can try to be justified before God by works of the law, but we will not succeed. That's what he's saying. That is not the way to go because we cannot and will not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We would have to perfectly and perpetually keep God's law in its entirety. Again, in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says this, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you want to try to be justified and bring the law into that in some way, then you have to keep it all and you have to have kept it perfectly. And you don't and you won't, and therefore you will be left cursed because... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In contrast to this, there is a righteousness that comes to us through faith. In verse 16, faith is spoken of as the instrument by which we receive justification. It is received by believing in contrast to working. Yet we know that, as it says in verse 16, that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, through the instrument of faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the instrument of faith in Christ and not by works of the law. What is meant by saying that faith is an instrument by which we are justified is that it is the tool by which a sinner appropriates Christ's saving blessings like justification. Uh, We do not unlock these things or attain these things by our works. Rather, we receive these things as a gracious gift by believing, by faith. The word alone is not used in this text, but this is clearly the sense in which Paul is speaking of faith. If it is not by works of any kind that we're justified, then by what instrument? Well, it's faith and faith alone. 
Again, it is worth remembering that the issue with the Judaizers was not that they were denying that faith is important, is that they denied faith alone. They were mingling and mixing faith with works. And, and you combine those and that's how you are justified. And Paul is saying that is not gospel. That is not good news. That is not grace. Ultimately, if you want to mix in a little bit of law, you got to go the whole way and take all of the law and keep it perfect. You're on the hook for the entirety of God's law in all of its righteous demands of perfection. If you want to bring works into the matter of justification. You now begin to assign to works an instrumental or causal role in justification. And this is what Paul is is categorically denying and worked up about. It is not that Paul doesn't want Christians to do good works. He's going to speak actually quite a bit about good works in the book of Galatians, including next week, we'll get to that, when he starts to anticipate and address the slanderous accusation that this is just to lead to just uh, a free-for-all of sin so that maybe grace may abound. That's how it's uh, addressed in Romans. We'll see that more next week. So it's not that he doesn't want, you know, there's no concern about good works for Christians. But when it comes to how one receives the verdict of righteous before God's tribunal, when it comes to this matter of how we are justified, he is saying that our works are out of the question. They are right out. They are completely excluded. We cast them far away. We do not look to our works in this matter of justification. They do not enter the equation anywhere except that they are part of the problem because our works are far from perfect and they've been far from uh, righteous from the beginning of our days until now. When it comes to justification, our works do not factor in. Again, all who rely on works of the law in any sense are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, in the matter of justification, look away from your works. Righteous standing with God comes not through your activity, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus. And there is an amazing amount of freedom here and I think rejoicing and joy if you believe that and make that your stand. When the law condemns you, when you are under the conviction of your sin yet again, remember that your obedience to that law is not the instrument by which you are justified, but rather through faith. Second affirmation, justification comes through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Faith is often used rather generically as a virtue in itself. You just got to have faith. Those kinds of statements, you just got to believe, you just got to have faith. Uh, But faith requires an object, faith in something or someone. Of course, we know faith can be badly misplaced. If you just have faith that 
Mankind is inherently good. That is a misplaced faith. That is not a virtuous faith. Faith is virtuous if the object of that faith is worthy. And when it comes to justification, it's not just some sort of generic sort of faith that justifies. The object of that faith is key. The object of that faith is given, again, three times, we're working in threes here, in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Saving faith is a faith that trusts in Christ Jesus. Faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ Jesus and all the blessings of salvation that he has earned, including justification. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has earned and secured the righteousness that sinners need to be acquitted before God. He has done the works that are necessary to save. And his works, his earnings, are graciously imputed, credited to the account of the one who believes in him, trusts in him. And this is the basis of our justification. This is the ground of it. It is rightly said that salvation is by works, but it's by the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, which are credited to our account by faith in him alone. Work was necessary. The point Paul's making is that it's not your works, though, that are necessary. It's Christ's, which is why we believe in him and what he has accomplished and done. Second Corinthians 5.21 is a great text showing how it is, what it is Christ has done. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Texts like this one are, are showing us something of the logic behind the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. He took our sins upon himself, and he died in the place of sinners suffering the wrath of God that we justly deserve for our sins, for our having fallen short of God's glory, of God's law. And in exchange, Christ pays the penalty for our sins. In exchange, we receive forgiveness of our sins, pardon, and we receive his righteousness. First Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ Jesus has become to us righteousness. He came and he obeyed on behalf of all those he came to save, to fulfill all righteousness, as he told John the Baptist. This is how it is that God can acquit us. He can render a verdict of righteous over us. It is not because a sinner works his way up to finally meet this standard, but because Christ's righteousness is credited to the sinner by faith in him. We possess his righteousness. He is our righteousness. A person is justified not because 
We have become personally, inherently righteous in ourselves, but because we have the righteous robe of Christ covering us. The work necessary for this has been perfectly accomplished by the Lord Jesus himself, which is why we have nothing more to add to it. We just receive it by faith, by trusting him, by believing in him. We place all of our hope in him alone. Paul is so worked up about this for many reasons, but among them, it's blasphemous to suggest that something else needs to be added, some other sort of work is necessary to add to what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. What? Really? Food laws? Eating this and not eating that? This is going to factor? This is, this, is how, this is how one is justified? Circumcision? Baptism? Whatever it might be, this is the thing that makes Christ's work really efficacious? Question 36 of the Baptist Catechism says this, and in answering the question, what is justification? It says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I think that is a very helpful and accurate summary of justification. And again, there is freedom here. This is what Paul wants to uphold. Obviously, the glory of God in Christ Jesus and the freedom of the believer to, to rejoice in this reality of being justified by faith alone. When you start to bring works back into the matter of justification, even if it seems small, it will lead one down the path of legalism and depression and discouragement. Because what's gonna, what are we going to find? We're going to find we don't measure up. We're going to find justifications in limbo in our minds. Uh, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I obeyed enough? Have I, have I got the right works enough to pass the judgment? But the gospel frees us from this. For all trusting in Christ, the law's loud thunder, as we sang last week, it's thunder that would condemn you for your sins, that would reveal to you you fall short of God's glory. In Christ, the law's loud thunder has been silenced. We know that all whom the Lord gives this gift of grace to, all whom he gives the gift of faith to, will also be sanctified will be gradually conformed into Christ's image, but we're not there yet, are we? We're not perfected yet. None of us are. And what comfort is there when we've discovered that sin that's still present? What hope do we have to pick up and to carry on? Christ is my righteousness. That's, that's our hope. Just as much today as it was yesterday as it was years ago, so it will be when we are 88 years old. The hope is that God counts me as righteous 
Because I am Christ's and he is mine. He acquits me on account of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. This is what ascribes to the Lord all glory in salvation. This is what excludes all of our boasting, which we read in Romans chapter 3. There is no boasting to be done here. And as soon as we mingle law back in, it undermines that as well. Sinners do indeed stand before God condemned. He is holy. He is perfect. He will not simply look the other way when it comes to sin. We have a massive debt of sin and no positive righteousness of our own by which we can stand before God and we can pass through his judgment. We are guilty before him. We are exposed by his law. We are thieves, adulterers, filled with lust, liars, idolaters, coveters. We cannot keep his law to overcome these things. It is no pathway to being declared righteous by God. Rather, a sinner is justified before God by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. It is in this way that we receive the righteousness of God and are justified. God's holiness is thereby upheld because he has dealt with our sins. The punishment that we deserve has been poured out upon his son at the cross. And his loving kindness is shown to sinners by gifting us his righteousness, which we could never otherwise attain. So look away from all else in this matter of justification and trust yourself solely to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not be put to shame. This is what it means to be justified by faith alone. This is the hope for each one of us that we must believe. And this is the hope that we would present and proclaim to our fallen and lost world as well. Indeed, the law of God does leave our world condemned. But as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness. What more can we say or do than thank you? Indeed, we are exposed before your law, before your holiness. You are good and perfect and pure. There is no stain of sin, no darkness in you at all. You are pure light. And in comparison to your holiness, we fall short, woefully so, and are in darkness. But we thank you that you have not left us so. We thank you for sending your Son, who took up our obligations, died on the cross for sinners, rose again from the dead. We thank you that he has secured righteousness in his obedience to your law that we do not have, that this is gifted to us as a gift of your grace and that is received by faith and not of works. Father, there's no other way. And so we praise you for your wisdom in this, that you, have, that you are able to 
Remain just and holy yourself and justify sinners. Father, I pray that this would be a great encouragement to our souls. I pray that this would be a great well that would pour out into love for you, into a desire for holiness and obedience to you. Not in order to try to bribe you or earn your declaration of righteousness, but rather out of thankfulness for what you've done for us in Christ. Father, I pray that you'd encourage encourage the faint-hearted, those wrestling with our sins. I pray that you would strengthen us, help us to look to Christ and to take courage and joy, knowing that he came to seek and save the lost. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.